lectured last week on how, as a Christian or as a church, we are to respond or interact with a, a pagan culture. We see that in Acts 17 with Paul. I do want to just say, appreciate all the prayers that have been going up for me with my back uh, and uh, rejoicing. Many of you got the email, I'm sure most of you probably did, that my surgery date got moved up from the 31st to the 18th. And so thankful for that. So uh, you can just pray that all goes well before the 18th and I don't get a positive COVID test or something like that that would keep me from being able to have the surgery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go into his word. Lord, we we come into your presence uh, because of what Jesus accomplished for us. Thank you that you so loved the world that you sent, gave your one and only Son. Whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, not perish. Um, Lord, thank you for your extreme uh, love for us. One of the good things that you've given us as your sons and daughters, uh, and you've given really to the whole world, is the, the good gift of your book, the Bible. And it is, it is a, a different than any other book. It's living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to get beyond the surface of our lives, go deep down, do a deep dive into our soul and spirit. And, and once it's there, it helps us to discern good from evil and right from wrong and to discern what we've been hiding, uh, attempting to even hide from you, but hiding from others or maybe even ourselves. Uh, it points out things that we need to change. Um, and we recognize that w- even that, we are incapable of making changes by ourselves. It, it requires demands the Holy Spirit working in us. And and part of the way he does that is through the Word of God. Thank you that this precious book is uh, builds us up and is able, as Paul put it, to give us the inheritance of the saints of light. Thank you that as Jesus was the the was and is the living word, your most uh, clear um revelation of yourself to mankind so the bible is a living book is the written word that stands fast does not change just as our great god does not change so help us to give attention to it not see it as an ancient book for ancient people but your book for all people help us to have ears ready to hear what the spirit has to say to us today May this bring you glory, and may it build our lives up for the cause of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So Acts 17, once again, this uh, short sermon series really is on uh, a Christian response to a pagan culture. How do we as Christians interact with uh, you know, a pagan culture? We began to look at it last week, and as it's described in the passage, we see it just being real in our world. We live in a pagan culture. And so let's read our text once again and then just uh, continue on in our study. Starting in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, that's our text that we're in. And we started last week just looking at kind of the beginning of where Paul uh, is alone in Athens because he'd been driven out first out of Thessalonica. Uh, first out of Philippi, then out of Thessalonica, and then out of Berea by the uh, raging, angry mob of Jewish people that were upset. And so he's alone in Athens, untypical uh, for him. He's usually traveling. And on this journey, it's uh, uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke and perhaps others. But uh, they had stayed in Berea uh, to continue the work. Paul was kind of the, the target for those angry people. And, and so he, he had been put on a boat, ended up in Athens, and he's spending some time there. We don't know how many days, but probably a number of days. And as he is in the city and he's walking around the city, not just viewing it from an archaeological wonder or the beautiful buildings like we might do when we travel, Rather, his eye is caught by all the idols that he has seen in the city. I mean, they're just everywhere. I mentioned last week that the population of Athens, about the time that Paul was there, was around 10,000 people. And uh, according to Greek historians at that time, there were probably around 30,000 idols on the streets in every niche, in every doorway, in every yard. It kind of reminded me of when we were uh, in the Chicago area going to school. And we lived in uh, one of the suburbs, Oak Park. And as we'd walk around the area, it was, uh, it was a, a very Catholic, uh, strong Catholic area. And you'd, as you're walking around, you'd see statues everywhere, Mary or angels, that kind of thing. And that, that's kind of the picture that he sees. And, and we saw last week that his, as, as he's doing that day in and day out, he, his spirit is being provoked within him. Very strong term. He's angered to the point of rage internally over the idolatry that he sees. Not just because idolatry is a sin, but because it represents how lost the people were in that culture, how pagan they really were. And so he's provoked. Not, not to walk around with uh, you know, pieces of poster boards saying, you're, you're idolaters, you're damned to hell. You know, not, uh, you know, having um, heated, heated arguments with people, you know, to turn them or to condemn them. But rather, 
he's provoked in his spirit and it moves him to begin to dialogue or interact with people in that world. And, uh, and so he does. And, and that's kind of where we left off in verse 17 where Paul begins to dialogue with different people in the city. And what we read there again in verse 17 is that he, that he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So again, Paul's provoked spirit didn't leave him to stomp out of the city or you know, to be in such disgust that he just would give hateful speech towards people. Rather, his righteous anger motivated him to speak to them about uh, their beliefs and to engage them so they could get to the gospel to share Jesus and the resurrection with them. And I know the last, last week, I think that, that, and we'll look at it again here, it's like they're thinking when he's speaking about Jesus and the resurrection, it's more likely that they're thinking he's presenting two more deities for them to consider. Jesus, Jesus, and Anastas, that's the word for resurrection, uh, rather than Jesus was a source of resurrection life. But uh, he, he begins to interact with them. Whenever God gave him an opportunity to share the truth, he would take advantage of it. The word that's translated in our text as reasoned, I mentioned it before, it's dialogomai. Uh, it's where we get the word dialogue from it. And again, it refers to speech that was used most often in a public address, like giving a spe- uh, speech or even in a, in a debate, arguing kind of point for point with people, not in a harsh way, but just uh, having a conversation with them, try to convince them. And that's what you do when you're dialoguing with them, trying to get them to see from your point of view, and they want to do the same. So it's not to say that Paul was being argumentative, but he was using his knowledge and his wisdom, both of the scripture and what he knew from his studies in Tarsus, where he grew up, the, the great uh, schools that were there. He was very knowledgeable in the scripture as well as in the writings of Greek philosophers and so on, poets. So as he's dialoguing with people, we see three specific groups mentioned, right? Uh, the first of those are those who were religious, and that's identified as the Jews. He goes to the synagogue, which was his normal pattern uh, when he entered into a city, uh, first bringing the gospel to it. He'd go to the synagogue first. He goes there, and there were Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And that's what's meant by the, the statement, uh, and some translations actually have it that way, the devout people. Those were uh, Greeks who had come to believe that there was one God only, and that's what the Jews believed in, and so they have attached themselves to the Jews', Jews uh, theology. They had not yet fully converted to becoming Jews, but that, that's who he means by that. So they're religious people. There are the common people on the street when he goes to the marketplace. Uh, that's what we run into. I mean, a lot of common people that we may interact with as well. And then there was the third group, the intellectual philosopher types, the, you know, the, the elite educators and so on, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So just think about that first group for a moment, uh, the, the Jews and the devout persons. Now, the, again, as I mentioned, these were the people that Paul would normally first take the gospel to, to the Jewish synagogue. And it was his custom to do that. I could read you passage after passage in Acts, like Acts 13, 13 through 16, Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, Acts 18, verse 4, Acts 19, verse 8. That was his pattern of ministry to first go to the Jewish people and the God-fearing Greeks. Both were monotheists, which is striking in a city full of idols, right? They were monotheists, belief in one God. They were worshiping the God of Israel in some way, but were still ignorant of the truth that Jesus was the Messiah that God had promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And so he would typically go to the synagogue in a passage of scripture. He might have been asked to even read a passage of scripture. And then he would get up and he would tell them, Jesus is the fulfillment of this scripture. 
And so, you know, when, when looking at the passages where Paul's doing that, going to the synagogue, it, it becomes clear that Paul's dialogue with such people is scripture-focused. It's primarily a reading the Old Testament scriptures and then a, a discussion or a debate. And that was the typical pattern of worship in the synagogue. Um, someone would read a passage of the scripture and then would, it would be opened up for some dialogue. So Paul's using what was normal in the setting, but it was, it was based on the Old Testament scriptures. So he spoke with them based upon their belief in God and their belief that there was a revelation that God gave of himself in scriptures. The second group of people Paul dialogued with were the ordinary street people, and that's what we read, uh, the people that happened to be there in the marketplace. Uh, the marketplace, the agora. And uh, the marketplace was more than what we might think of it. We think of the marketplace as like the local mall, right? Which kind of getting emptied out of stores in the last year. But uh, that would be, you know, a good way of thinking of the local mall. Or if you're, uh, you know, affectionate to the, the downtown market, which will no longer be downtown, but out at the Diamond Mall this coming uh, summer, uh, that type of thing. But it's not just that. It was that. It was a place of commercial business, but it was more. The marketplace, so the, uh, the Agora was kind of seen as the town center where business would be transacted, but it was also public business and government business that would be conducted there. It was a place where people would engage in discussing uh, discussions ranging from business to politics to philosophy to almost anything. So we might think of it in, in terms of putting together you know, uh, a bit place of business, and that's where the Anchorage Assembly would meet. And so you could go and discuss things with, uh, you know, with the uh, assembly leaders, those that have, you know, some authority over what's going on in the city. So there are religious people, there are common people, which is probably the bulk of the, the people that, you know, we might encounter. Anyway, Paul was da- uh, daily going to the marketplace and, and reasoning with those who were present and I have no doubt that his reasoning with those in the marketplace differed from his reasoning with those in the synagogue. In the synagogue, it was Old Testament scripture-based, dialoguing about what God had revealed in the Old Testament scripture. But when he went to the marketplace, he would, you know, he would be talking with people who had no knowledge of Old Testament scripture. Um, they certainly would have known of, of Jews, uh, but they probably didn't know anything about what they believed in, the book that they believed in, and so on. Um, and, and so he's interacting with those kind of people that would have no knowledge of ancient Jewish writings or even of God's history with the children of Israel. I mean, I mean Brad was sharing with us about Exodus, you know. And, and, of course, as he's sharing that, we can think about reading through Exodus, reading those stories, very, uh, you know, knowledgeable to us who read the scripture on a regular basis. I mean, I read through that, that section of scripture at least once every year as I'm reading through the Bible, which I've been doing annually for over 30 years. And, and, and you likely as well, you're familiar with those passages. But the people in the marketplace, they don't know anything about that. And so he begins to interact with, with them. But he does so at a level that they you know, could understand, dealing with the issues of, of their lives, what's going on in their lives, and, and what's going on in the city, what are the concerns in the city. Most certainly, as the following verses uh, show, the discussion always ended up at Jesus and the resurrection. <laughs> so he's talking about life and what's going on in the city, and, you know, what do you view about this and that? Oh, by the way, have you heard of Jesus? And the resurrection, he always try to get there. Now, if it's anything like our experience, that, that could be, a, I don't care about Jesus and the resurrection. I'll walk away. I'm done talking with you. No more discussion. You're out of here. Or I'm out of here. Now, there's might. It's like, 
Oh, no, I haven't heard about Jesus. Is, is he like Zeus or Ares or one of the other gods that you know we recognize? Um, you know, it, conversations would have been different because everyone's different, right? And so he's reaching people with uh, where they're at in life and the things that they believed in, the things that were precious to them. And then we come to the third group, the intellectual, the elites that were present also in the marketplace. And and those were the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And we read that in verses 18 through 20, right? That that, that, uh, a, a discussion took place. And we read a little bit about that discussion in the text. But these discussions would have taken place in the marketplace again because it was more than a business center. It was also political. It was an idea place. Kind of like going to Starbucks with, you know, a, a really big Starbucks. There's a lot of people talking about a lot of different things. So in effect, we're getting the first impression when we read this made upon these intellectual elites. And the city, you know, it had made an impression on Paul, right? He was provoked in his spirit because of the idolatry that he saw. And now we see that Paul's making an impression on the city as he talks with the Epicureans and the, the uh, Stoics. It's, it's clear they've been hearing things about what he's sharing with people. And so these two gr- groups actually represented two of the competing worldviews. That's a, a phrase that's been become very well known in our world. What's your worldview? Do you have a Christian worldview? Do you not have a Christian worldview? Uh, in fact, Pastor Tom and I listened to a podcast five days a week uh, by Albert Moeller. And it is on current issues from a Christian worldview. So these are two other worldviews, Epicureans and, and the Stoics. The Epicureans believe that Everything happens by chance, and, and death is the end of all things. Uh, extinction, no afterlife. They believe that there were gods, but those gods have nothing to do with the people living in the world. In essence, they were practical agnostics. If there is a god, we don't know who he is or who they are. We don't really have anything to do with them. They don't have anything to do with us. And they believe primarily that pleasure is the chief end of man. You know, the Christian Orthodox view, what is the purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the Epicurean view of life? Enjoy life forever, as long as you're alive. That was kind of their view. Um, it was in, their, in their thinking, it was just a simple lifestyle that was most pleasurable. Now, according to Epicurus, who is the founder of this worldview, this school of philosophy, pleasure consisted mainly of freedom from pain and unrest. Freedom from pain? I'm into that. Uh, Who isn't into that, right? And unrest. Aren't we all looking forward to the day when we might have less chaos and unrest in our culture? Well, that was kind of their view of life. Uh, you know, the, the greatest pleasure comes from freedom from pain and mental unrest. And that doesn't mean just physical pain, emotional pain, social pain, relationship pain, just to be free of that and not to have all the chaos that, you know, exists everywhere you go. And the best way to achieve that in their thing was just to live a simple life. That hardly describes our culture. You know, that's certainly there's a lot of Epicurean thinking in our culture today, but it, 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 it's changed from what the Epicurean worldview was at that time. Uh, you know, by, by the time that Paul was there, much more attention was being placed on the pleasure uh, that was more a hedonistic view of life. And that's where our world is. You know, pleasure all the sex you can get, all the toys you can acquire, all the you know, prestige that you can have, you know, being a rising star in the political world or having you know, the house, the best house on, 
on the hill and higher than anyone else. And, you know, that's hardly a simple life, but that's kind of where it was already turning by the time Paul arrived there. And it's just multiplied exceedingly in our own culture. And, and so the Epicurean way of life really began and still continues to lead towards a base and immoral lifestyle associated, as we would think, with paganism. I mean, it's all about just self, self-satisfying, self-pleasure, etc. Um, and then, you know, their belief was when a person dies, they simply cease to exist. Uh, so you might as well look for all the pleasure you can experience while you're here. Uh, there's a phrase that goes with that way of thinking. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Um, right? That's kind of the, the, the way that a lot of people think in our culture. So it's very easy as we go through this passage to think, this isn't just ancient talk to ancient people. This is right down our alley, right down where uh, we live in the culture that we live in. Now, the second worldview was the Stoic school of philosophy. That was not founded by, by a guy named Stoic. It was actually founded by a guy by the name of Zeno. And uh, well, where did its name come? Stoics, you know. And we still use that term. To, he's very Stoic in, in how he handles things. You know, we still use that kind of thinking. Well, it actually came from the, the word stoa, which is the word for porch. And it was called the Stoic school of philosophy because of the porch where Zeno taught his followers. Uh, just a little interesting tidbit there. But the Stoics were pantheists, uh, you know, which doesn't simply mean everything will pan out in the end. Uh, you know, pantheists actually believe that God is everything and everywhere, and whatever happens to them is, is a matter of destiny. That's pantheism, stoicism in its simplicity. Consequently, they lived with a, a fatalistic approach to life. There's a phrase for that. What will be, will be. Que sera. Sera. Kuma matata or something like that. You know, uh, the, the Lion King, if you didn't get that. But... Uh, so, you know, this is a, a fatalistic view of life. Their world view is that life is filled with both good and bad. Pleasant, unpleasant things. And the, the highest good is actually seen in duty and self-discipline to handle both sides of life. The good and the bad, the hard and the, you know, the simple, uh, the pleasurable and the unpleasurable. Just, it's a grin and bear it. View of life. Grin and bear it. You can't do anything about it. So you might as well grin and bear it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people might think, well, isn't that what you Christians believe? Everything's just, you know, sovereignly decided by the Lord. And if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Well, yes, we do believe that. The Lord is in control. I mean, it's emphasizing even in our text that he's sovereign. He, he defined what nation would rise up and fall and where they would be located. And that's true for you. Where you live, the house that you live in, the apartment you live in, that's true about your car that you drive, the clothes. I mean, we believe that. You know, the, the hand of the Lord is on our life. As he directs the heart of the king wherever he wants, so he directs the heart of every person, right? And he even has a purpose, as Proverbs puts it, as a purpose for the wicked, you know, to accomplish his will. So isn't that the same thing? Just grin and bear it? Sometimes I feel like that's what I'm doing right now with my pain. I'm grinning best I can and bearing it. But it's, it's not at all the same in thinking. Um, you know, th th this kind of view, fatalistic view, or this grin and bear it view might be illustrated by, let's say that, you, you know, you're a parent and you have kids and one, one of your kids really gets into skateboarding. Any of you have that in your family at some point, skateboarding, right? And let's say that, you know, your dad, you got to get up and you're in a hurry to, to get to work. You grab your cup of coffee and you head out to your garage because, well, you know, if you're wise, you'll have a garage in Alaska where you can park your car during the winter. But, 
regardless of that, let's say that you go out the garage door and you step down because they're stepped down into your garage and your child has left their skateboard uh, on the step and your foot hits it and boom, bang, you're down on the floor and you're hurting, you know, immediately. And, and then you get up and you kind of say, Phew, boy, I'm glad I got that over with. You know, that's pantheism, that's stoicism, that's grin and bear it, that's whatever will be, will be. No, that's not really the Christian way of thinking. The Christian way of thinking is that God is good, and he has only what is best in mind for us. And yes, he is directing the affairs of our life, and the affairs of our church, and the affairs of our community, and the nation, and so on. But God is always good, and he does only do right, and he only does what is best for us. Uh, there's, there's not a grin and bear it attitude. There's a rejoicing in our sovereign God attitude. Now, the Stoics also, uh, you know, they, they didn't believe in a personal God that they would associate with. It was, you know, God is everywhere, everything, in everything. You can see that uh, in the, and kind of in the view of like cows are holy, so don't do cows and you know, don't cut down that tree. You might be cutting down God and, you know, that kind of kind of stuff. But basically this worldview says in the end the person dies and what happens upon death is you disperse. Your essence disperses into God. If you want to know the modern uh, theatrical view of that, it's Star Wars, really. It's the force you know, all of that. Um, not a Christian worldview. Now, listen, when, when Paul's speaking to them and he gets to Jesus and the resurrection, it s- sounds strange to them. That's what we see in verse 18. The gospel sounds strange to the lost. Whether, whether it's the really religious people they're trusting in their good works, or it's the common person that's not thinking about life after that, they're just living life, or it's the, the elitist, you know, morally superior, educationally superior, philosophically superior people, you know, the gospel actually sounds strange to the lost, and that's what we read. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And by the way, the, the word translated converse there is not the same word as dialogue. This is a little bit different word, symbolo. It refers to a conversation, but in the sense of expressing differences of opinion in a very forceful manner, involving you know, alternative opportunities still to present, you know, contrasting viewpoints. If you will, I mean, it really is a strong debate. It might be what you would see if, you know, you have an election happening and there's a debate on the stage and, you know, they're all trying to make their point. And generally in doing so, they make their point by debasing someone else. And so that's the kind of what's going on with these guys. They, they feel superior to Paul. And uh, they began to debate with him. The impression Paul had made on the, these philosophers gathered in the marketplace, you know, it wasn't the same in all cases. You can see it in the text. I mean, first you see those who are engaged uh, with the apostle in, in, in mocking him. It's mockery. Luke says, some said... What would this babbler wish to say? So wrapped up in their response, you know, was clever sarcasm, really, and name-calling. Does that happen in our world towards Christians? Name-calling? And they they think they're so clever, you know, in in the the names that they might use uh, to describe you or the, you know, Christians or the church or or what have have you. and the the word that's used here, the word babbler, um, again, you don't need to remember the the Greek words, uh, spermologos. Uh, it, it was originally used of birds that would fly around picking up 
scraps or seeds. Well, we see that a lot, you know, in the in the winter it's the ravens. You know, uh, you know, someone throws out a wrapping from a McDonald's burger or something. You know, they're right on it. They're picking up scraps, whatever they can pick up, and and then you see them fighting over it. You know, uh, during the summer it's more seagulls, and of course they're very noisy and they're uh, picking up of scraps. But that's the word that was used, and that's how it was originally used. And then it became to be used of worthless people who collect collected scraps of food left by others. I think of the homeless, you know, that we have on our streets, and that growing number of people picking up scraps. You know, they might be asking for it, or they just are finding it, maybe sometimes thieving it, but. Uh, Then it became to be used of one who had acquired bits of knowledge from other people. So from birds picking up seeds to people picking up seeds of knowledge. And they they looked upon Paul as mere, you know, a secondhand retailer of used goods, uh, knowledge goods, philosophical uh, views. Again, I think that's the culture that we live in. There, there's a lot of mocking of Christians, and and you know they, they just think that you're a seed picker. Second, there were others who thought Paul to be a preacher of foreign divinities, is how the ESV has it. The uh, King James or New King James has foreign gods. Both are good translations. I mean, this group seems to engage Paul. At, at the level of some sort of spiritual curiosity. They, they want to hear what he has to say. They even ask questions like, we would hear more of this. So, uh, again, it's, it's probable that they thought that he was proclaiming Jesus, Yesu, uh, as a God, and the resurrection, Anastasis, as a God. And, and this, this wouldn't necessarily repulse them, right? Think of, again, of the culture that they're in, with an idol on every corner and on every niche and you know all the different kinds of gods that they worshipped. I shared with you last week, it's not only the, the well-known names of God, but also you know, they were, had idols to human capacities or feelings. So it wouldn't have shocked them um, to have you know, him in their thinking talking about two new gods. I mean, what's two more to the unending list of gods? These two uh, various groups of people, or, or all of these various groups of people, so the religious people, the common man, and the intellectual elites, they are the same kinds of people that we will interact with in our culture if we are having conversations with people and, and trying to get to Jesus and the resurrection. Um, our community is full of people that think they're Christian. They think they're Christian. Why? Well, because they believe in God. Or they go to church, well, at least twice a year, you know, Christmas and Easter. So they go to church. Or, or they grew up in a Christian home. You got it. And, and likewise, our streets are, are occupied by those who are simply living life with no thought of God, no thought of religion, no thought of eternity. They're just living life, you know, each day until their life will end sometime. And finally, maybe you've had conversations or debates with those who consider you to be nothing more than a seed picker, although they probably not called you that. That's how they would think of you. You know, you, you are one who simply gathered bits of religious teaching from your preacher or you know that church or that television program or what have you that religious book that you read that you've read and you're just kind of passing on you know bits and pieces of information whether you know know it or you just heard it you know you may not they may not think that you actually understand it and know it and believe it they just see you as just passing on scraps of religious information. 
and, and, and they may actually show a little curiosity towards your thoughts on spiritual matters, but they tend to look down on everything that Christians believe, and, and they kind of view Christians as those people who have left their brains at the door when, when they believed in Jesus. So, the, you know, the point I'm making with, with these comments is not simply to say that we should identify and pigeonhole people. It's like, oh, you're one of those religious people. You're in that category. Or, oh, you're, you're one of those common people. Or, you're, you're, you're one of those intellectual elites. I'm, I'm categorizing you. We tend to like to categorize people. But, you know, that's not the point. The point is that we should be aware that when we encounter people, they'll be coming from different points of view. And if we are interacting with them, we ought to try to seek to understand what point of view they're coming from so that we can get to Jesus and the resurrection. We should be seeking to dialogue, to converse with them about the Lord at the level of their understanding uh, rather than our understanding. And if we're doing that, maybe God would give us some specific opportunities to share or clarify the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. God alone knows the opportunities that he may give to us. We see God bring an opportunity to Paul in our text. Right, He had been walking through the city, provoked in his spirit, interacting with people in the community, but suddenly God opens a door of opportunity for him in verses 19 and 20, where it says, and these, they took him, that would be the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. I imagine Paul's heart just kind of soared. When he got open that door, I mean, not that he hadn't been doing it all along in the marketplace or in the synagogue, but this is like an open door into a place of import, as he thought of it. So a de- de- decisive moment had come. Uh, again, I mentioned it last week, but the verbs in the preceding sentences are all written in the imperfect past tense, which means you see it as happening over a period of time, not just a single event, but over days. Um, we just don't know how long. But Paul was reasoning with those people in those various settings, but then a crisis is reached, in a sense, in his discussion with the philosophers, right? And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, while there is no reason to see this as an arrest or a, a violent you know, kind of act on their part. They weren't arresting him as such. It was more of a, a, a casual invitation to get together for coffee. No, I think it was more than that. Hey, come with us. We're going to talk to the people that matter about what you're saying. And the idea was, we're going to find out whether we're going to allow you to continue to say it. So it wasn't just, hey, let's have a cup of coffee but it wasn't being arrested. Um, you know, the Areopagus, uh, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Athens. You probably all have seen pictures of Athens with the Acropolis where the temple is at. That's not this. Areopagus was another hill in Athens where you could view the Acropolis and the temples there. But the Areopagus could refer to the hill of Ares who happened to be one of the gods, the god of war, um, also, also known as Mars Hill. Or it could just refer to kind of the council of the Areopagus, which was meeting in the marketplace. But there was a place there that was like, okay, now we're going to get down to city business. It would be kind of like you being invited to the assembly to share your view on what's going on with the homeless or your view. Well, they actually don't want to invite you to do that. But you get that picture. It's that kind of thing. We're going to get, we've been hearing you're saying these things, and so we're going to bring you before the, the important people who will make this decision whether you can continue to share it or not. 400 years before Paul was there, um, when the court actually had, the court of the Areopagus actually had greater authority, 
Socrates. You've heard his name before, Socrates, Socrates, uh, had stood before the Areopagus and he was actually condemned to death for his teaching and was basically, we'll either kill you or you can kill yourself. And he was forced, in essence, to take hemlock and commit suicide for his teachings. Now Paul's standing in their midst, not with any idea of being forced to commit suicide like Socrates had done, but to give an answer. For what? For the hope that lied within him. Right? First uh, Peter 3.15. Being always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. That's what we should be. We should be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And we don't have to do all pre-planning for that. Well, what will I say? You know, I mean, knowledge is good. But if you're reading your Bible on a regular basis and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. And Jesus kind of told the disciples that, didn't he? You'll be brought before councils and, and so on. And don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will guide you when you're there. And I, I think that while it was a direct promise to the apostles... I think it is an implied promise to us as well. If we are just prepared, God will give us opportunities. And if we're ready for them, he'll present opportunities. And as we take those opportunities, you know, we shouldn't say, oh, I'm so afraid. I don't know. I don't know what I will say. I I don't. Can you say Jesus and the resurrection? Can you say Jesus died for your sins according to the scripture, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures? Can you say for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life? Can you say, you know, all people are sinners. I mean, all is sin and fall short of the glory of God. Can you say that there's nothing that you can do about your condition before God, that you deserve his wrath, his judgment. You're helpless to do anything. Truth is, you're ungodly. You're a sinner. And and the only hope that you have is Jesus. He's the one who reconciles sinners with holy God. Can you say those words? I I think you could without... Right? You, You could. So you don't have to be fearful of that. If God opens the door, just get ready to... Tell them what you already know and do it in the most loving way that you can. And we'll end there just thinking about that. God alone knows the opportunities that he will give us if we're faithful. If we're faithful in our life or if we're a disciple who is taking up our cross daily and following him. He will give us opportunities. Uh, Now whether or not we'll be obedient and take those opportunities or not, that, that falls on us, isn't it? I mean, we can be disobedient, we can run, uh, or we can be, as we're told in Scripture, be bold as a lion, you know. Uh, and, and, and God will open up those opportunities. And I don't think it will be like, I'm going to get an invitation to Congress in D.C., you know. I don't think that. But I may get an opportunity talking to someone in a grocery line or in a, in a dentist office or a doctor's office, if you can still go there. You know, uh, listen, and God may open it up, open it up. But I told you last week, I, I, have, I have been a failure in that, you know. And, and there are times when fear drives me. I don't like to be rejected by anyone any more than you do. But you're a preacher. Yeah, I am. And I'm a person just like you. Struggles with fear and struggles with, you know, being open with people. I want people to like me, not dislike me but shouldn't we be more concerned about honoring God than whether people dislike what I mean the Psalm 56 put it well I will not be afraid of man what can they do to me well they might hurt you yeah they, they might they might hurt me you know socially or emotionally or whatever Isn't God in charge of that too? Can't he bring consolation to our soul when we're faced with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Paul was was just doing what he normally did, and I hope that we would be more normal at doing that too. 
I pray that we would be as a church and, you know, as individual followers of Christ, speaking the truth about Jesus and the resurrection with those that we come into contact with, that God obviously brings us into contact with. Paul's faithfulness led to this opportunity to be brought before the Areopagus. Who knows where your faithfulness will take you. I can't wait to hear. I can't wait to hear about the doors that God opens up to you. And now the Holy Spirit directed you. Will you share those stories with me as they happen? I know the other pastor would love to hear that too. We'll try to share those stories with you as well. To encourage one another to fulfill the commission that the Lord left us with. We have the message of forgiveness. We have the message of hope. You know, and people are, a lot of people have lost hope. And, and by the way, there is no hope in the government. You might get a stimulus check, but that's not hope. There's, there's, no, there's, there's no hope in me. I hope I'll be faithful and I'll be an encouragement to you. But your hope better rest on the Lord. That's where all of our hope should rest, is in the Lord. And, and he's trustworthy and he's able and he will accomplish Good, wonderful, can I use the word miraculous in the sense that only God can do it? Things through us if we'll just make ourselves available to him. Well, Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for uh, the Apostle Paul's example, how you used him. And Lord, thank you for directing Luke to write this information down. And then you put it in a a book that we could read over 2,000 years later and be encouraged by it and be convicted by it. We pray that we'll all respond as we should to this, whether that is in repentance, turning from sin and, and, and trusting you more fully, or maybe it's just going to be, I needed that today. Maybe that word of encouragement. Or maybe it is you just opened up some of our thinking into, I wonder what great things God would like to do through me. As, as, as the scriptures, the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those that he can support. May we rest in you, find our strength in you, and fulfill what you've called us to do individually as believers, as disciples, but also as a church, to the glory of your great name. Amen.